out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the musician and also writer and bass player. It is Seth Lawrence, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. He was in a DC punk band called The Vile Cherubs, but has gone on to various other um, musical combos and has become a writer. Has a book coming out next year, which is going to be titled Writing About Psychedelics, Ancestral Trauma and Healing. He has got a website, which I will give you the address of a little bit further on, or towards the end of the show, because it's really worth checking out. Um, So yes, this is the interview, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that fascinating subject that was the early formative years. Seth, it's over to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I came from a classical music family. So there was always there was always music on the hi-fi, but my mother's piano, which is across the house from me now, was there too. So there was always a way to actually make music. And yes. from the time I was really young, I think those the low notes on the piano, the bass notes were really what spoke to me because they moved my body I could feel them in the lower half of my body and it was really just so unusual feeling for a young kid like uh the fact that these invisible waves were were making this physical reaction they really sucked me in and from then on I think it was I mean it would be years until I picked up the bass guitar but I think that's where it began just the feeling of the sort of physical sensation in my body Yes, the journey of it. Uh, yes, it's interesting your parents were into sort of classical music because often people say, oh, actually, my parents weren't at all musical and we didn't really have much music in the house. But obviously you had a bit of a, a head start in some respect. Were they quite kind of intellectual or bohemian types or were they just just kind but, of into know, the... My mother my mother was probably something of a, of a bohemian. Unfortunately, I don't know very much about her life. She died when I was four. So um, we were really left with, that's another reason I think I gravitated to music because the only evidence of her was this piano. Mm. And sort of that's where I would go to find traces of her, if that makes sense. Yes. But that actually, that actually opened up my second musical awakening, which was that my older sister, I think sensing correctly that uh, I was in, distress after this terrible tragedy she brought all of the Beatles LPs and left them with me and what it what what this is 1975 and um I think what was really unique about that was that obviously this is far pre-internet but also the Beatles are history at this point you can't click on the tv and catch them doing a press conference where you can't see a televised concert. The only way to interact with them is by putting on these LPs. And I really think there's something important about people, for our generation at least, of having to go into the music as the only source. There's no, there's no ephemera, there's no, there's no sort of apparatus surrounding it the only way in is by putting on these physical pieces of plastic and falling into the music and the 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 most detail you can find is you can read the liner notes 
But again, as a four-year-old, I'm not sure what those meant for me. But the but the effect was so immersive and so deep that um, it really you know that really shaped me for the rest of my life. Yes, well, I'm not surprised because um, it was kind of interesting because my I had an older brother, so he was seven years older than me, and um, it was interesting what you said about music because my parents they were very working class when I was growing up. So when they got married in the late 50s, they were that generation that never borrowed money. So they kind of got rid of all their possessions and just kind of scraped all the money together to get home. So it was only in the early 70s we got a record player and they bought a few quite naff records. My brother had a few other records that he brought into the house and said, don't go into my room and play my records. So obviously I, I went and sneaked in and went, ooh. Sure. And so I discovered, you know, this world, you know, forbidden world almost. And one of, and the two albums that he got quite early on, and this was like probably 73, 74, was Sgt. Pepper and also Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I would sort of like have to sort of, A, make sure he wasn't going to come home and B, you know, sneak sure. in and play these records. And again, a bit like what you were talking about, this kind of discovery, because there wasn't, I sort of, we remember the, you know, the Monkees films, there was the Beatles films, but once something was on telly and it was gone, it was over, wasn't it? There was no other access to anything. And um, and so one, yeah, just learned a lot about life through these kind of funny records. And it was even more intriguing because I was, you know, forbidden from going in and playing them because... He was very nerdy. He got those plastic sheets that he put over the record. Yeah, so I, yeah. I had to learn not to touch the, you know, the middle, you know, had to touch them in a really careful way because he would literally yeah. inspect them. And then he got into prog rock. So I started getting into Yes and Genesis and the solo work of Rick Wakeman as well. So it was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, who is King Henry VIII? And and who are these wives? You know, it was all, it was all kind of fascinating. So yes, it was, it, it was interesting what you said about that world of, the Beatles and and sort of understanding the importance well, of a record. Yeah, and again, experiencing them after the fact, because for my older sister who experienced it in the moment, it was very much a live event. She could watch them on TV. She could go to see them play. She did not go to see them play, although I learned much later, she took a trip to London in 66 and actually saw the Yardbirds, which kind of blew me away. And I still have her copy of having a rave up with her name written on the written on the jacket as people would do back then. Fantastic. So she was also she she also, you know, she gave me those initial Beatles LPs, but later, uh, about eight years later, when I was an alienated and sullen teenager, she came to the rescue again because I would go to visit her. She we I grew up in Washington, DC. She lived in Boston. But um at that time, she had all these punk and new wave records, as well as this amazing 60s rock. Mm. And, and that was just falling through this trap door into this other world that it seemed like it was either did not exist anymore, the 60s rock, or the punk and new wave was so distant. It seemed like, oh, well, that only happens in London or that only happens in New York. That Again, the only way to access it was just by listening to the records over and over and over and falling into that kind of immersive sonic space that um, that is just so important for a young person. You know, like cutting off visual sensation, cutting off associations with, you know, meaning and meta-meaning, but just the music, that's all there is. Yes. And um, I kind of miss that. 
<laughs> I know. You know now, now that everything can be known, everything is accessible. You can look up footage of obscure bands playing back in the day. But again, back then, having the only channel being music, I think, was really significant. Yeah, it was. It was huge. I mean, and also, in, you know, in the UK, which had so few channels, we just had something called Top of the Pops on a Thursday, and then we had the charts on a Sunday evening. And um, the charts moved really slowly. So records kind of went in at number 30 and would be 27 the next week and then 22 the week after. So records lasted a long time in those days. It didn't just come in at number two and then go out again. It was like, it kind of, oh my God, they've gone down. It might get, and if they go a bit further, you know, down or higher in the charts, they might get on top of the pops and you'd actually see what they look like. And it was like, it was just terribly excited. We see simple pleasures. It, it, It all happens actually. So your sister sounded very hip. To the to the groove. If she was in London seeing the Yardbirds in the sixties, and then managed to do that transformation, which very few people do, of then getting into punk after being into another scene, a different scene earlier in another decade. I think, yeah, I think she, she she's hip for sure, but she also she also there's just an element of luck. My my father was was Hungarian. Our father was Hungarian, so he took her back to Europe in sixty six. She was what. 13 years old. Um, but she just really happened to be in London and and met someone who said, Oh, hey, there's this show at a park. I don't know if it was Hyde Park or or some other spot, but she just sort of stumbled into this scene um and was just at the right age and had the right inclinations. Um yes. yeah, I mean my her luck and my luck. <laughs> Yes, that was quite something, actually. So then 76, 77, this is when punk, I was far too young for punk. Well, I wasn't that young, but I had a brother who was into prog rock. So frankly, you know, he didn't have a seven inch single in his record collection. And these people couldn't play Bach or any classical motif on their keyboard or bass. There was no bass solos were there in punk. So he dismissed it. And I slightly was influenced by him. So I you know, I don't know how old I was, 11, 12. It just, and I came from the countryside. So frankly, scenes didn't come to, you know, the countryside for decades, literally decades later. And even then people were suspicious and threw stones at people who might look a bit trendy, all from London. Um, This is what the UK is like. So what was it like for you? You know, did you pick up, obviously you did a bit with the the record collection that your sister started to bring in. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. So there's a there's a, a, a maybe the the central figure in in the DC punk scene of the 80s and 90s is someone named Ian MacKay from the band Fugazi, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, he's he's your age, a um, little bit older. We've talked about this. He remembers the Sex Pistols, and they were in fact supposed to play in Washington. In DC, but canceled. They're supposed to play across the river in Alexandria. And a few of the older punks, I remember one one person in particular showed me the ticket stub for the Sex Pistols show in Alexandria, which never ended up happening. But anyway, I bring up Ian because he and I have spoken about this. When the Sex Pistols, Pistols came on the scene, he was already of age. I wasn't really, I was sort of hear rumors in the playground, but they were terrifying. They sounded deeply scary. I mean, they, they <laughs> sounded like kind of supervillains. And the way they were described to me was that it was basically an onstage S&M act. 
with with male and female singers performing sex acts with their microphones. I mean, it was obviously a highly fanciful take, but punk was scary. And I think there was there was this sort of I mean, like you, like you say, sneaking into your brother's room to hear his forbidden records. For me, there was this sort of charge, like, well, this sounds scary and it sounds deeply weird, but I I gotta find out what it is. And so when I finally heard the Sex Pistols through my sister's record collection a few years later, I realized they're, well, first of all, they're just a standard rock band. There was nothing that shocking about them anymore. But the fact that they caused such upset and the, you know, the content that they were singing about, I mean, a total rejection of the society around them, that really spoke to me. And, um, and I was hooked. Yes. And did you, at that stage, did a bass guitar appear in your life? Did you think, right, right around it, then. it, got, it came yeah. in? Because it, yeah, it, was, it was kind of interesting because, yeah, you, you know, I suppose the first time I got, you know, the Sex Pistols album, but that was quite a few years later, you know, when you put it on. I mean, there was a kind of energy and a rawness. And now I listen to it and it all just seems almost like easy listening, isn't it? <laughs> 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 it's all very constructed and it's very nice and it actually there isn't anything it's not like the post-punk scene which becomes very scratchy and a very you know very like art school whereas this is quite solid it's like the i often say it's like the monkeys meets the stooges you know you put those together and you've got the sex pistols a bit really yeah or what did what did someone someone here said it's 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 like it's like a speeded up Martha Hubel. Um. Yeah, I can I can hear that. I can hear that. But I mean, you know, again, context is everything, you know. Yes. Um, and, and also at the, at that stage the UK was going through a deeply kind of difficult period of sort of poverty and there was lots of strikes and and the uh, the industrial kind of the center of the UK was just disappearing quite drastically and the, you know it wasn't functioning at all and there was lots of different changes in the government um and then you know there was a, you know power cuts and there was just a, there was very little money speaking to people from that period i remember doing an interview with fast eddie from motorhead and he was just saying you wouldn't believe how little money there was at that stage you know everybody was so poor you yeah. know but we were all poor so it didn't seem any you didn't know any different you know whereas now it's weird because everyone's got rich, but they've also got debt. Whereas then we just have no money. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the triumph of late stage capitalism. Yes, <laughs> it's a yes. That's an interesting little beast, isn't it? Really. So yeah. So the bass guitar. When when did this kind of appear? And and then you started to take things up a notch. Yeah, this same same time period. This is like the early eighties. I I got my first bass when I was twelve. So this is nineteen eighty three. Um, and I, I, I don't think I could have named it then, but like I said, my, the, the low notes on my mother's piano, there was just something about, and also the unusualness. I mean, I knew some kids who wanted to play guitar. That was obviously you know, the, the easiest instrument to access, but the bass was something different too. It was a little bit odd and a little bit weirder. And somehow some part of me knew that, uh, there would be there would always be a demand for me if I could actually <laughs> learn how to play the bass. Um, I would be needed. You would be and needed. It, well, yeah, and it turned out I was right because um, you know, I was I was a weird loner of a kid. Uh but 
as soon as people at my school found out that I actually played bass guitar, I got invited to play in bands. And and that sort of snowballed from there. I mean, again, I was I was good enough at bass that I could I could kind of wing it. And it turned out people need needed bass players. Yes, the bass and the drummer. They're the, they're the kind of critical people, aren't they, in any band, really? Yeah. Especially the poor old drummer who has a lot of stress, don't they? Because I I mean, you know, again, this is a bit UK based, but, you know, 79, you know, we suddenly get Thatcher in. I mean, you've got Reagan, then we have the Falkland War, then we have the Miner Strike, and then we have Greenham Common and the threat of nuclear war. And then a few years later, there's this sort of, the, yeah, there's rock against racism. And then, you know, we have Red Wedge, where everyone's trying to get the young people to sort of vote to think that that might make a difference, which has been studied by academics, does does politics and does music change political landscapes? And um, yes, it's, it's you know, people like to bash that one around. But then then for me, I suppose between 83 to 87, there is this kind of the band, the Smiths appear. And suddenly from that punk, post-punk, there was new romantic material, there was kind of electronic material. But then there was this kind of real chapter in the 80s where we had the Smiths. And, and, and during that period, that was kind of my band, I guess. And um, I just wonder what your 80s world was like in America. So it's it's funny. I, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and she has recently discovered the Smiths, which is, it's really funny to me, uh, because the, the, the Smiths were not my band, but I did like them. And uh, I remember them coming to town. And in fact, people... It's a weird thing. I think like these these two girls who are old, a bit older than me were, were, were became friends with them and um, would sort of hang out with them, at least with the rhythm section, not with the, the front people. Anyway, uh, to semi answer your question, my 80s was about was all about looking outside because the present, which was you know, you, you talk about Thatcher coming in in 79 and the scene in England in the 80s. It was very different in America, but it was also, there were similarities too. The the, the first election I remember was 1980 and right. Reagan. And I found it, even as I'm nine at that point, I found it deeply, deeply troubling. I really, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which was then a majority black city. It's not anymore. But it, be, it was very clear to me that Reagan and the administration that were coming in were not friends to Black people. And they were not friends to, to uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have a, enough political consciousness to call myself liberal by any means. But I knew what, that what they wanted was not just on a sort of like, a very childlike sense of justice mm -hmm. was not in agreement with me. And uh, the biggest terror in that era for a young person was nuclear war. And what Reagan was saying was, we want more missiles. We want more bombs, not fewer of them. And this was deeply, deeply troubling to me. So my point being, this is the overculture that's happening in the 80s. And people loved it. I mean, he was elected in a landslide and then he was reelected in a landslide. So I wanted anything but that. And my way in was through the music of the 60s. 
remember I started with those Beatles records. Yes. But then um, reacquainting myself with my sister's record collection around this time and finding bands like the Yardbirds, like the Birds, um, eventually things like the MC5, sort of more, more obscure stuff. And remember also in those days, well, I say, remember, you grew up in, in England, a totally different scene, but the, I would hear songs on, I listened to rock radio and amidst all the modern stuff, which was, I remember always being Hotel California and Van Halen and just stuff I really did not connect with, like sort of like, well, Van Halen's not meaningful, but like late period Pink Floyd, like 70s Pink Floyd, which I did not connect with at all, like sort of epic, meaningful songs. And then in between all these, you would hear songs that were only 10 years old, like um, All Day and All the Night, uh, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, you know, the early kinks who, yes, even Ichiku Park by the Small Faces, uh, you would hear these things and they really nailed me to the spot. I mean, there was there was like a directness and immediacy to them that really spoke to me. And that's where I wanted to go. So I dove deeper into the music of the 60s. And eventually I connected with musicians who felt the same way. And that's sort of what set me on my path. Um, my My... You know, I I definitely wouldn't say I've been in a significant bands, but the the one that got me sort of out into the club scene of DC and 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 introduced me to the the punk scene was a very explicitly '60s band called the Vile Cherubs. Yes, and and ironically, the guitarist was my oldest friend. We had met when I was three and he was four, and we loved the Beatles. We loved the Monkees, and then. I told you earlier, my mother died suddenly when I was four and we were basically split up. I didn't see him for what, six, seven years. And what was incredible is when we reconnected, we actually ran into each other outside the local guitar shop. We had landed in exactly the same place. We were both dressed as sixties mods, the parka, the suit jacket, the tie. Excellent. And we just fell in together like, like no time had passed. And he'd, he'd come to the exact same place. We both just love 60s music. And again, in the 80s, you know, there was a larger 60s revival happening in the 80s, definitely in the States, I imagine in the UK too. Yeah. But that felt like a really, that felt to me at least like an act of rebellion, like rejecting what was on the radio, which had, by that point, transitioned into synth pop uh, or like Americana, a la Bruce Springsteen, and looking at something that felt meaningful and rebellious from 20 years before. Does that make sense? Yes, no, absolutely. Because that, I mean, in the UK, there was something, there was that mod revival band uh, scene, which, you know, I've done quite a lot of interviews with those those people. And um, yeah, I mean, there there was just a very small scene, but they were very committed for that five-year period. And there was also something called a new Paisley scene as well, wasn't there? Which was kind of, I think that was much more American-based. There was a lot more people who were dressing. There was, was it the Dream Syndicate, the Bay Bangles? And then a few years later, people like Green on Red. And um, 
I don't know. There was there, there's been quite a lot of bands that I've you know interviewed from that little that little gang, Steve Wynn and his mates, yep. and um, all yep. those people, which you know, and Chuck Prophet and stuff like that. So there was there was always this kind of intrigue, and I I've always stuck with a bit of a sixties thing that I've been a bit obsessed with the the counterculture and initially I sort of regretted not being part you know young old enough to being part of it and I used to love listening to people's stories talking about when they saw Jimi Hendrix at some club when he was you know they were watching Cream and then suddenly you know Eric Clapton brings his guitarist on and I went wow Peter you were there you saw it and then you went to Hyde Park and you took acid and then you saw the Ronan Stones when they were with King Crimson but you were so out of it you can't remember who you saw that day you know and it it was the 60s you know and I became fascinated with that whole period of 63 you know where the Beatles come together then you get that psychedelic world of 67 Summer of Love you had the the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco in um, January. And in the UK, we had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally, and it was all going terribly well, wasn't it? Hendrix and the Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead. And then 69, 70, you get Manson, you get Altamont, you get the death of Hendrix, Joplin and um, Morrison, and then Brian Jones the year before. So the, the 60s is kind of fascinating. And then you know, they had the film Woodstock that makes it look brilliant, but now you realize it would have been hell on earth. <laughs> oh, God. No, I... So so this is something, too. So you, you're familiar with Sam Nee of the, the scene in between. Yes, yes, with yeah. A, yes, yeah, very, very... Um, oh, with, yeah. So he, 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 he's got a new book, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got a new book, which actually has a couple of Vile Cherubs photos, uh from from you know that earlier band of mine yes but, but he's he he's pointed out something which feels really true to me which is that uh in the 1980s the 60s felt far more distant than they do today because there was so much information you know again there's there's the internet but um people have spent the last 20 30 40 years digging up footage, digging up audio. And so there's this sort of wealth of material that allows us to to seemingly know everything about the 60s, those bands from the 60s or the culture from the 60s. It's far easier to find than it was in the 80s. In the 80s, it really felt like I was looking through a microscope trying to find any traces of this incredible scene, this incredible culture that had only been 20 years before, but it seemed like you know, hundreds of years in the past. And so as a teenager, my bandmates and I were just really doing our best to sort of, I don't know, cobble together the sounds and the look and the spirit of those bands. And in the process, also, you know, combining this with the DC punk scene that was happening at the time, the DC hardcore scene, and sort of smashing all these elements together and making something that I in retrospect, is actually kind of unique. I mean, the Vile Cherubs were a weird band, but there's something about it that that stuck with people and and continues to. I mean, we've actually, we've reissued our demos, I think, twice on different labels. And there's, there's talk now of reissuing them a third time on vinyl, hopefully in the next year or so. But um, yes. Yeah, yeah, there was just something, there was, again, like there's something about young people imagining what they thought this other time period had been and then creating their own 
sort of off kilter version of it, but you know. Yes, I yeah, completely understand that because actually for us, it would have been a case of probably going to the library. We wouldn't just buy random books and random records. You'd go and borrow things and record things or just look at things and have to take them back after three weeks. And and it was very mm-hmm. there was there was not a lot of information. So the the sixties, even though that was quite recent in a way. I mean, when I spoke to the journalist Nick Kent, he said he started in 73, 74, and he said, for me, I suddenly went, God, the Beatles, when I realized when I started playing Sergeant Pepper when I was very young, it's like they'd only just split up, but it seemed like it was a totally different time. Mm-hmm. And when Nick Kent started, he said, well, a lot of the journalists who had been around that period were waiting for the Beatles to reform, whereas he was thinking, forget it, granddad, you know, punk is on the way and we've got a new scene. And it's interesting because in that moment you realise, oh, that's what we can all do sometimes. We can just be sitting on our scene and it's the next load of 16-year-olds come along and they go, actually, we want our own bands. Of course, that's what I did. I wanted to get that first single. I wanted to discover that band. I didn't want somebody who had been around and for five yeah. years and had you know we're getting a bit of an attitude and where they're going to release a record where they're going to tour we you know it's like you wanted a that seven inch single and see them up close at a small gig didn't you so that was well, very different well for, for i don't know why but that bring that really brings i think the 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 first kind of modern band that really spoke to me on a personal level was the jam and by the time I discovered them, I think they had actually just broken up. I was I was kind of stunned, but they were really focused on kids making something unique and making something outside the mainstream. I mean, yes, they were on a major label for sure, and they were you know they were well they, they were a well oiled machine. They had you know they had their apparatus, but they I think of all those early punk bands. You know, the, the jam may not have looked punk. They looked like a, you know, a classic English mid-60s band. Yes. But they really, I think of all those punk bands, they were the ones who actually kind of stayed stayed true to their principles. This idea of kids doing it for themselves. You didn't have to be of a certain age. You didn't have to be of a certain economic background. You, you just make it because no one else is going to make it for you. And you're not, not waiting around for you know, the, the next, the next band of, of prog rock experts to save you, <laughs> you make it yourself. Yes, absolutely. So, it's actually beautiful. I mean, again, one of the gifts of having the internet and the sort of like the, the music digger culture is there's footage of the jam doing sound checks on tours. And I, th- I think the deal was for the often, uh, you know, for kids who were too young, to get into pubs or to get into halls, they would just open up the sound check and let and you can you can the camera pans around the room and there's just a room jam-packed with 13-year-olds who can't go to the show, but they're at the sound check. And that that really touches me. Still. Yes, absolutely. Because they they became they were one of, at that stage, they were the ones who would get straight in at number one with Adamant and they yeah. were able oh, yeah. to to bring that kind of pop sensibility, you know, to the market. Whereas a lot of punk records, they're kind of just almost unlistenable today. You know, they're just like not because they're difficult, musically difficult. It's just the lyrics are just so naive or 
just dreadful, really. You know, ball stall breakout by Sham 69. The, if the kids are united, we'll never be divided. It's like you kind of have to be. So, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the older punks in D.C. were, were really into Sham 69. And I, I know, in fact, mentioning Ian again, he and. I think he and Henry Rollins, maybe. But there was this sort of fabled trip to London in like 1980 or 81 or something. And they actually took the train out to to meet Jimmy Percy. <laughs> I think they were just huge sham fans and, you know, good on them, but I, they were never my band. <laughs> they no. Didn't really <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't get it really, even when I was quite young. So you, this is Tim, you were going back to the Vile Cherubs. This is Tim that you kind of meet up again yes. with. And then, yeah. so had, had the band already formed at that stage when you connected again or was, were you part of the, the early years? No, so Tim, yeah, Tim Green is my oldest friend, and we we re-met outside that guitar store, and he was he was a little bit ahead of me. I mean, he's he's six months older than me, so he literally is ahead of me, but he already had uh he had a really great band called the um the 13th Hour, and they were sort of oh god, they were sort of like a like a 60s RB pop band i mean i think they they covered songs by the action and oh. yeah yeah it's funny because i got the action from from i think it was paul weller just went you know and you went oh, oh yeah, the, the action, action you know <laughs> yeah. i'll go and get the greatest hits well you know what there's there's a there's a bunch of there's a bunch of material from the actions sort of actual time as a band which is all kind of in the you know the british r&b vein but they made, uh, I think they're just demos. It's about five songs that came out much later. Uh, what is it called? The Action? Action Speaks Louder Than is what this EP is called. And eventually they turned into this group, Mighty Baby, who I hear are sort of England's version of the Grateful Dead. Um, the early action stuff, the R&B stuff, I think is is cool. The later Mighty Baby stuff doesn't really speak to me, but this one EP of demos, still to this day, really, it's so beautiful. They were, they, they clearly, some of them were choir boys. And it's sort of like a, oh God, it's like a proggy R&B. That doesn't sound very good, does it? But it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really special record. And if you can find it, Action Speak Louder Than by the Oh, action. okay. Because I remember Cherry Red Records brought out a full CD uh -huh. box set. And it has, you know, people like Paul Weller and also Phil Collins, bizarrely. And um oh, sure. were, huge pop. He was huge. So they yeah, so you had the Parlophone Masters, and then you had At Abbey Road, and then you had various outtakes, and then Rolled Gold Plus, and then Action Extras as well. So it's got quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Oh, it does. He, he, yeah, on disc three, it does have Action Speaks Louder Than, and it's got Only okay, Dream, there you go. Dustbin Full mm -hmm. of Rubbish, and uh, oh, understand, so love, understand and Love, My Favourite Day, and a same for, to, same for Today. So there you go. But anyways, okay. so <laughs> Tim, Tim had this band, The 13th Hour, and... Uh, I think they were they were kind of done, and my band at the time, really my first band, was playing a school dance. I mean, we were too young to play in clubs at this point. I'm you know I'm what fourteen, I guess, 
But Tim took his bandmate, uh, a guy named Jesse Quisland, to see my band. And my band was objectively not very good. We played, I don't know, kind of like new wave guitar pop. Like we covered the jam. That was my idea. We covered R.E.M. The guitar player was obsessed with R.E.M. Um, but it was kind of like unremarkable, you know, high school guitar pop. But Tim and Jesse were impressed with my bass playing. And so they said, why don't we form a band? And after a couple of permutations, that became the Vile Cherubs. Um, and kind of by dumb luck, we managed to get a show at a, a venue called DC Space, which is a really, really special place in DC kind of punk and arts history. It was it was a nightclub in a performance space downtown when downtown was really, really pretty burned out. I mean, mm. DC, DC was a pretty stressed city in a lot of plays, in, in a lot of ways. But DC Space was this oasis and they had a really liberal booking policy and and they took a chance on two high school bands, one of which was the Vile Cherubs. And we played there and something, something just clicked. The booker, a woman named Cynthia Connolly, who actually, uh, she, she shot the Vile Cherubs photos, which are in the new Sam Nee book. But she also has a deep history in DC punk. She drew the minor threat, black sheep icon, Right. Um, she just countless, really excellent photos of, of DC punk. She also did the first DC punk book, uh, Band in DC, with two other women. Uh, so, anyway, my point is Cynthia worked there. She liked us. She could see that we were doing something unusual. And we just found a home there. And that's how we sort of entered the DC scene and added our own weird flavor to. Uh, to what was mostly kind of, I guess, post-hardcore at that time, 1986. Yes. had started. Uh, Soul Side, I think, is just sort of happening. It's the sort of in-between time between the first hardcore rush and then the 90s scene. You know, again, bands like Fugazi and Jawbox and Shudder to Think and all these bands that would at least sort of like touch on the mainstream, if not totally break through. Mm-hmm. Yes, because in this country, well, I suppose one of the favourite bands for two, three years was Huskadoo. They were sort of hugely popular in this. Well, they weren't. <laughs> I was very obsessed with them um, <laughs> and thought they were like going to be the biggest band in the world, which is always a kiss of death when I say that to any band, um, because they then, you know, they're not. And then so yeah. so there was Huskadoo. There had been Sonic Youth. There had been Big Black and, and people like that. And also the Cramps as well, wasn't there, who was slightly different. I mean, did those kind of bands have an impact or influence on you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was discovering all those bands around then. Less Husker Du, that came later. There was also, there's a funny like DC, there's something about Husker Du. I think like there was some, some like, some heated interactions between Bob Mould and people in the DC scenes. They were sort of like an enemy band. They were never <laughs> loved there. But um, no, all those bands, you know, they they played so there was DC space, but a few blocks away was another venue called the 930 Club, which has since moved and is much expanded. But all these bands were coming to 930 Club. Uh Sonic Youth, Big Black, 
Um, there was also, yeah, so these bands are breaking through and I know, I, I know, I know what you're saying. In England, they were, I think, a bigger deal than they were here to some degree. But there was also a really thriving 60s revival scene. Uh, and so there were bands like the Cynics, who were from Pittsburgh, who were really, really powerful, kind of 60s garage R&B-ish band. Mm -hmm. The Chesterfield Kings, the Cramps, of course, inspired um, all of those bands. Um, and there was a really, you know, the 60s revival scene was, was never going to be as big a deal as hardcore or punk. But it was a real thing. And it was it was like a viable alternative to people like me who didn't want to get punched by skinheads, but wanted kind of snarling, aggressive sounding music. And um, so, again, like, you know, most of these bands have sort of since faded into obscurity. But um, but, but that was a real thing. And, you know, you could go out and see bands like The Brood or the rhomboids of the cellar dwellers or in dc there was a there was a mod band called modest proposal um so there was a there was a real scene around that that was kind of bubbling just beneath the surface yes and it i mean for us i mean there was you know on a simplistic level of, of all these things going well there's several because the uk is so tiny but we used to have three weekly music papers we had the nme mm -hmm. science melody maker huge circulations of nearly a hundred thousand plus we had this dj called john peel who was a great he was on the bbc so he was kind of quite a, you know the gatekeeper who plays much obscure and bizarre stuff as possible and then every little town and city in the uk has a alternative indie night so like with the uk you know bands can quickly get in their transit van and just have their tour of you know the the towns and and various other little places in front of two or three hundred people that they you know it wasn't their friends and family and anybody they could blackmail to go and see them they just would you know they would sort of have a huge new audience but then 87 you know for me the smiths break up but then the other thing that happens is ecstasy comes along you know and that slight change of drug has this massive impact in a way because suddenly you had the dance world and suddenly the dj and then you had chicago house music and then people were listening to ambient rave like the orb and 808 state and orbital and then there was like the happy monday soup dragons there was the stone roses there was just like okay everyone's a little bit on a different drug now and that has a massive impact actually but then you know come 1990 then we started getting the seattle grunge scene as well so what was i mean obviously your band had been going before that but what was that kind of did you ever have those kind of shifts in in the 80s no <laughs> no <laughs> not at all um I think by that point, I was really, I was really immersed in the DC punk scene. The Vile Cherubs broke up in what in 1988 when when most of us went off to college, but I stayed behind, and um, I, yeah, I, I I immersed myself more deeply in the DC punk scene, and frankly, you know, obviously we would hear music from out of town and bands were coming through all the time, but the scene in DC, you know, it's not a huge city. But there was a really, really vibrant community there. I mean, we had our own record label, Discord, plus some others like Sandwich and Fountain Youth and R&B that were doing smaller things on the side. Um, but there wasn't much of a need to look outside. And there was so much happening 
right sort of like on our own doorsteps that I I felt like, you know, dance music never spoke to me anyway. Like mm-hmm. if it wasn't being played live in the moment by humans, I really wasn't that interested in it. Um, and grunge, you know, it's funny. I remember a there was a DC band called the Holy Rollers that I was uh, friends with. They went out to they went out to the West Coast and they opened for Nirvana on a tour between their first two albums, you know, before before Teen Spirit kind of broke them. Yes. And I remember my friends coming back with a cassette of not a Teen Spirit, but I think of the single that's in between. I think it's called Silver or Sliver or something. Anyway, they played me this cassette. And I I loved Nirvana. I thought it was a great, I loved that first record. And I loved the tape they were playing. I was like, oh yeah, this is super cool. There's a bass solo and everything. <laughs> uh, and my friend said, you don't understand. They're going to be huge. And I was like, well, um, I mean, yeah, they're a great punk band, but what are you, what are you talking about? Like, they're just, they're just a band. I really, I had no ability whatsoever to see into the future and what an impact that would make. No. And so when Grudge finally did happen, you know, again, like it just sort of, it, it it didn't really resonate with me. There was too much happening in DC and um, for whatever reason, it didn't, it didn't really matter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. I remember when they came over because John Peel started playing this compilation called Sub Pop 100 and there was various tracks on it, including nirvana track but then they they he was playing bleach quite a lot and they came over supporting tad so they were the support band for tad and that's when i got to see them and um you know again it was just like yeah this is fine it's very john peel absolutely don't hear any hits in this but i absolutely love all the songs about school and you know various other angsty stuff but i mean there's absolutely no way they're going to be successful in a commercial way so um there you go. I'm always wrong. And like Husker do, who just like, yeah, they're going to be huge. No, they're not. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> but then, yes, the album that comes out for the the Vile Cherubs. This so this gets released after the band had had broken up. So yeah, what happened is we when we were a working band, we recorded two demo tapes with a guy named Jeff Turner. Jeff Turner was the main force behind a band called. Grey Matter, which is an amazing DC punk band that kind of bridged 60s garage and DC punk, kind of in this way that we would later. Jeff recorded these demos for us, and uh we love them. They're vibey, they're vibey sounding, they're not hi-fi, but they really captured, like I said, our, our just sort of weird idiosyncratic take on 60s punk. Mm. Um Time is moving on. Again, some of the men are going to go off to college and we figured, well, we should make a record. We've saved up some money. We should document this in a more real way. And what was funny is that we didn't, we we never considered using those masters that Jeff had recorded as the album. Instead, we figured, well, you, you're supposed to go to a proper studio and you're supposed to, you know, do it, do it a certain way. So we went to Inner Ear, which was the 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 studio in DC, uh, recently closed, but owned by a guy named Don Ciantara, who recorded almost all of the DC punk stuff. 
And, you know, we were, how old was I? I think I was 17 at that point. This is our first real studio experience. We, we recorded this record and we did just loads and loads of ridiculous overdubs because we thought you should, like we're in a studio. So, you know, I, I had like a hollow body bass guitar. And at one point, I think like I took three, three of the strings off and I played the remaining string with a bow lying on a table. And it's like, you can't even hear it in the mix. Like, why, why did we do this? Jeff, who had been our producer, wasn't there. I, I forget what was happening with him. So there's no one just to say, hey, look, you know, do what's useful and skip the rest. So the LP that we ended up with is not very good sounding, to be blunt. The packaging, I will say, is amazing. Uh, we used, to save money, we used pre-printed screens, uh, pre-printed sleeves from a, a company that did gospel records down in, I think, like Nashville or something. And then we silk screened over it, like our own words and our own logos. They're really, they're really weird looking. It's a, they're cool pieces of art, but the music the, itself is not great. Um, and unfortunately, or, you know, whatever, that that turned out to be kind of our, our legacy, such as it was, until the 90s, when someone or other, I actually forget the guy's name, showed some interest. I think by then, Tim and I had gone on to other bands that had a little more notoriety. And he figured, oh, maybe there's the market for this. So he, we, I should say, we re-released those original Jeff Turner tapes on a CD in the 90s. Um, and then about 15 years later, an Australian label did a really, really lovely reissue of those demos with some extra material, some neat packaging. We like printed facsimiles of some of our early flyers. It was really neat, like this, this neat sort of loving package, like this little time capsule. Excellent. But now, yeah, but and now the band have been talking over over Zoom because it is still pandemic times over here and we're in different parts of the country. But we actually got the original tapes from Jeff Turner and we got the original tapes from Inner Ear Studios with the with the hope that we can remix both of them and somehow make the album we should have in 1988 uh, for vinyl today. And, you know, we're on a slow boat. Uh, three of us have families and kids. Well, we all have families. Three of us have kids. But um, it's been really, really sweet reconnecting with people, some of whom I've known literally my entire life, and looking back at what we did and recognizing, oh, this was actually kind of weird and cool. And... <laughs> The idea of it having a, what, a second, a fourth life on vinyl would just be kind of a kick. That's fantastic. God, I love that story. Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing just how many people have done something really similar. There's lots of bands who have reconnected, you know, mm -hmm. around the world and, um, you know, literally. And then somebody, you know, they kind of like, I haven't really played much music or one person, sometimes the drummer who's gone, had a bit of a career in music says, well, actually, you know, I could, you know, for various reasons, there seems to be a little bit of a pattern of actually, we could sort of record a bit and then you send it to me and I could sort of do some mix. Mm -hmm. it goes. Mm -hmm. But there's also the other thing, which is like, we've got this archive, it's either 
laying in the cupboard or the you know attic or it's uh, it's kind of a record company that got bought by another record company and another record company and you know we would like to get it back and reissue it just for the archiving factor and you know they're in that process of having some music lawyer who's quite cheap who's sending letters and can we kind of get the tapes back can we just kind of put it out there because it's you know there's publishing and all that kind of stuff so there's there's that process and it's been really interesting how many people are in in that boat of just going you know it would just be nice to sort it out really and just get it out there but at the same time you know, I've got my guitar right, and I've, I can't remember how we played those songs. Let's not think about them. But we could make some new material. And it's like, well, okay, you know, I, my fingers can't do it too much. But then they kind of go, oh, that was pretty cool. So they're kind of like, kind of having an enjoying sort of life, actually. It's quite well, interesting. Well, I, I was stunned. Sam Nee told me a few months ago that my my absolute favorite band of the six of the 80s 60s revival are english they're they're called the prisoners maybe you've heard of them oh yes yeah yeah yeah. i love the prisoners tim tim turned me on to them and the milkshakes too billy childish band but um the, the prisoners are playing shows uh actually in a few days i think like in a week they're playing four nights at a at a pub in um what in kent or someplace Right, of course, it's that part of that scene, isn't it? Um, not quite, not the Canterbury scene, but there's, I don't know, there's somewhere. Well, the I Medway think, scene. The Medway, that's the one, isn't it? God, you, you're good on this one. Yeah, they're, they're all slightly having their moment again, aren't they? And, uh, you know, and I really love that. I have a bit of an issue with Blur going off and having this one big concert for the money because <laughs> it's like, well, that's just the money. And whereas these guys or women, really no money but there is something like actually you know that was quite nice and you know we've either sorted out our differences or we just didn't really you know we just went our separate ways but yeah it's interesting it's interesting isn't it yeah the prisoner yes and they'll probably think right let's just you know put the new material out on Bandcamp. so when you yes so then after the vile cherubs you then have quite a career with various other bands don't you and uh, what I, I wouldn't call it a career, but um, I, I, I did bounce around from from thing to thing. I think I think the only I think the one the only one of note from DC at least was called Circus Lupus, and that was what I joined that in ninety ninety one ninety one yeah, and that only ran for about two years, but um, yeah, that was another sort of like just like an outlier. I mean, it was definitely a DC punk band, but I think, oh boy, I don't know how to characterize us. It definitely wasn't the sort of melodic uh, family. I think of like Shudder to Think and Jawbox and, and even Soulside. There was something a little more kind of fractured and uh, maybe fall-like. Right. Not sure. But we, think did, we... we did make it to England. We we toured in a uh, oh boy early '93. Fantastic continent, yeah. Well, we you... actually, that was that was our high point. We got an we got an enemy single of the week. That's my that's my lasting lasting claim to fame. Was that tight, bright Walker or Trenchmouth? No, there was 
those are those are singles. I think Tightrope Walker was our first single, which I didn't play on. And then we did a split seven inch with um yeah, with Trench Mouth. That's right. Yes. So that was the one. So did you do this as a tall headliner? Were you all supported or packaged toward the UK? Yeah, no, we were with a we were with another Discord band called Longfish. And um another really odd incredible dc well not dc baltimore band but yeah we 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 shared you know we would we would bounce you know one of us would headline one night the others you know pick it up but yeah we spent a lot of time there i think we were in the uk for maybe two weeks total i'm not sure but it seemed like we went everywhere i mean i remember playing places like preston and thinking like oh wow this is this is a little rough (laughs) <laughs> yes so you probably did that circuit sometimes it was leeds glasgow manchester preston all, leicester all those places down yep. to brighton bristol and um yeah that's fantastic the one thing i've slightly noticed with american bands compared to the uk because in the uk i think people stick to one place quite quite rigidly you know and so a band gets together you know at a certain age you know between 16 18 and they have that five-year narrative you know they have the one year rehearsing practicing all that kind of malarkey they get a single on the john peel show then a john peel session that get that first album things going quite well then the second album can be a bit tricky or third album and then that's kind (laughs) of it whereas but people stick in one place but with american bands i've just noticed it's like well actually there's an amazing fluidity because i get these emails from k records you know and i've interviewed various people from um the famous band called bikini bikini kill is it bikini yeah, sure. that's the one and 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 the woman who was a drummer i mean she's just in so many bands it's like do you just kind of just slip into each other's bands called you know well someone went off then we formed this band then when someone went off and then we formed that band then it's like wow in the uk i think we're just in the britain we're so much more uptight it's like you stick with a band you break up you fall out with each other and that's it there isn't this kind of such an easy oh well someone so went to college so so went to you know, work elsewhere that broke up. So we just formed another band with a new new group of people who were who'd been in bands themselves. So there's a lot more movement. Is that just a is that just a slight sweep? It is a sweeping statement, but is that true at all? You know, I I obviously I can't speak to to, to anything current at all. I mean, I no. will say <laughs> no, I have no idea actually. But no, but in the 80s and 90s, for sure, people, I mean. Bikini Kill moved to Washington for a summer. Why not? Um, there was interesting music happening. And so, yeah, people like Toby, the drummer. Yes, would, that's the one. You yeah. Know, yeah, would have, you know, they had bands in D.C., project bands in D.C., and I'm sure they were going to other places too and just sort of starting these one-off projects. I mean, it seems that's interesting to me, like, whether whether the the US scene or the UK scene were more static i mean it seems like in the UK i mean it's so much easier to get anywhere the country being exponentially smaller tiny i do feel like in the 80s and 90s you know there's there's all the i will say this there were certain bands that opened up circuits of travel for instance, Black Flag, the, the LA punk band, they played 
everywhere before there was really a sort of like functioning tour circuit you know yeah. people who you, you oh yeah call call Lori Barbero in Minneapolis and call you know John Brannon in in Michigan and like you know you know who to go to before there was that there were bands like Black Flag who really just sort of trailblazed and I think Fugazi did much the same thing and by the time I was of age to tour, which is, you know, again, late eighties, early nineties, there is this sort of established circuit and you would sort of find the same people popping up again and again, even if you were in a different geographical location. I don't think that answers your question in any way, but there, there were these sort of pipelines between cities. And I think there was a way in which people and information and news and records traveled across the country in ways that they wouldn't ordinarily have because there wasn't any, you know, sort of method of distribution. It was, it was all very handmade, but it worked. Yeah, it's kind of, it's just interesting because actually the one of the other things I noticed and when bands break up in the from the UK, it's like, you know, normally five, six years. But the other one that they often say is like, we went to America, we did a tour, we came back and broke up because it was just like we just could not, it sure. just was too big it was too much we we were broken by the end of that experience and um nothing prepares anyone for that american tour where they they well, kind of yes yeah, like, hold that thought hold the thought yes listen now do 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 i had to uh i had to let my dog in um <laughs> But that's see that's funny like because that was that was for for bands of my of my ilk like Circus Lupus that was our experience of in Europe I mean the 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 stereotype was you if you're a Discord band you make two albums go to Europe and break up and that's exactly what we did um, <laughs> excellent touring is just touring is hard it just is and especially you know I think there's more of an infra an infrastructure now um, for better and worse but. Yeah, I mean, driving, you know, I remember sleeping in the van in London, like trying trying to get to sleep with the van parked on a February night, midwinter, on a busy street. I forget the street, but it was, you know, there's traffic 24 hours a day. Mm. And you're trying to sleep in this thin metal van. Touring is hard. <laughs> it's not it's not <laughs> for the faint of heart, you know? Yes. And, you know, you're playing small venues. You're not really getting paid very much. It's incredibly exciting, but it's hard, and it 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 breaks people. It does, yeah, absolutely. There's it some bounce. great the the band in the van. It's one of those classic stories, isn't it? That um, you can only do it once. I think when you're young. I know when when I did an interview with Fish from who a few years ago, who was going about about to tour, and he's quite a tall chap, and he just said he had to say, "Look, I need a proper bed because." If I do my back in at the beginning of this tour, which is kind of a oh, couple really? of years ago, I won't be able to walk on on stage. So I do need to just, that's the one thing I'm asking. I'm not a diva. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, the touring is is the thing. And I've I've even bands who said with, with so little money, they used to have sort of plastic bags around their feet in snow. And it was just like... But you were on the front of the NME. This is a band called Loop. And it's like, you must have had some money. It's like, we just had no money. That was yeah. the problem. And that's, you know, and you, you know, on a diet of crisps and bad sandwiches and sweets and cigarettes and alcohol, it's like, so that's why you don't do it when you're older, really, isn't it? 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. So then after, so with, with your kind of, obviously you, you've got the music career passion and then do you sort of then develop another sideline, which is the one that kind of pays the rent? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a, a, my paying work is as a copywriter. Um, and my creative work has become writing too. Uh, I, I'm editing a book for publication next year on, um, oh boy, it's a story of, of untangling my family history, uh, including the Holocaust and the world wars through psychedelics. Yes. I said, so this is right about <laughs> psychedelics, ancestral trauma and healing. Yes. This yeah. is your title. And it's so it's it's one subject, but three three major strands. Yeah, I mean it's 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 told through through my personal story. I don't, I don't know any other way to, to say it, but basically it's a it's about um sort of waking up in middle age and recognizing that there are mm, let's just say the, the, there are there are forces and impulses invisible to me that are directing my life and as i dig down largely with the aid of psychedelics i recognize that the experiences of my father and his parents in the second world war were very much alive in me today and eventually the, the book ends with a with a trip back to hungary to sort of uncover the truth or as close as I can get to it My. of what they live there. So it's not, it's not an academic book by any means, um, but it is. Um, yeah. It's a very personal story about, about waking up and, and really saving my own life with, largely with the aid of psychedelics. Yes. And when, and when did you start to have that as a, a major force or major thing Think about it's probably started about six or seven years ago. You know, music was petering out for me. I had, I'd been in a few, I live in Portland, Oregon now, and I, I'd been in a few bands here and I tried to make music my paying work with varying amounts of success. Not, a, not enough, frankly. And I just sort of came to this crisis point where what I was doing no longer worked. Uh, I couldn't see the way ahead. And Again, I had the sense that there was there was something preventing me from fully inhabiting my own life. And these last years have been the hard work of rewriting that, of sort of exhuming those ghosts. Um, but the result is this book, which I'm immensely proud of. And you know, again, will we'll come out next year. Yes. Beyond that, I'm I'm working on a book on my time in the DC punk scene but I have no idea when I'll even have a first draft ready. Yeah. So did the psychedelic, did you use the psychedelics when you started the process of peeling through the kind of the layers and the, and the different levels of where you were going to, or, or was it, yeah, was it something that you found to be useful processing this? I, both really i mean what happened is that i reached a crisis in my life my marriage was disintegrating and um very very fortunately for my wife and i we engaged with a therapist who suggested uh, at her own peril because that it is against the law 
that we try a therapy session under the influence of MDMA, aka ecstasy. Yeah. And um, that changed everything. Uh, we're still married, thankfully. Um, but that really, I'd already started investigating my family history a little bit, but that really cracked it open and and helped me understand that, again, these, these stories were really these lack of stories because I knew very little about my family. Um, as a kid, I'd... You know, I was born in 1971, and it seemed like the Second World War was ancient history, even though it had already it had only ended a quarter century before then. That's not much time. No. So, as I began to do this work and sort of untangle what wasn't working with my life, I was getting these hints that maybe those stories, or again, those lack of stories, had something to do with it, and there was something I wasn't seeing. So eventually, it became kind of a quest really to learn as much of the story as I could and then uh, eventually there was no choice but to go back to Hungary I just had to go and learn what I could and I I learned far more than I expected to yes uh, because I have I have relatives there who have a uh, you know they have a very different perspective on my father's story and on their story and really just by digging and by being by allowing myself to be led by where the psychedelics were taking me um like i said i discovered far more than i expected and it's you know uh i can't <laughs> i don't have perspective on the book but i think it is a riveting story and it's yes. certainly a one so you so your dad had sort of spoke about his life and his childhood and had explained what happened very little very little. I think when he came to the United States in 1948, he imagined that he could just sort of leave all that behind. But that's not really how trauma works. I mean, yes, the passage of time changes things. But uh, in my experience, at least, there really has to be a deliberate reckoning with what's happened. And I think what happened there was so horrific and so many of their family and their friends did not survive it while they did. It was really all my father could do to just sort of shut it out and say, that was the past. It's not the present. But of course, yes. these things live on. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the science of epigenetics. No. But um, epigenetics basically is, is the study of how, oh boy, how our our parents and our grandparents' experiences that are that are not genetic mutations, but they're, they're merely life experiences they're having, are transmitted into our DNA. So, for instance, you know, at the end of World War II, there was a, a terrible famine in Holland, among, among other places. But um, researchers found that the children of people who had undergone this traumatic experience, nearly starving to death, had very measurable health impacts, even though they were not yet born. Right. Um, tendencies towards anxiety, depression, even schizophrenia. And the same thing is observed in uh, offspring of Holocaust survivors, as I was. Um, 
these things are, are are transmitted not only by the stories that are told, or again, in my case, hidden from view, but also on a genetic level. Yes, that's amazing. So, what? what <laughs> very, what, very far from eighties pop, but <laughs> yeah. So, I was just kind of curious. So, then, what? What was it that that you discovered in in Hungary, which was so different to what you your 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 father's kind of narrative had been? There was a there was a lot of of. I think being on the ground in Budapest and understanding, first of all, the extent to which Jews, like my family, were excluded from society uh, and eventually hunted, you know, there's there's nothing like being in that physical place, knowing history and standing at the spot where these things happened mm. to sort of inhabit it in a real way. But I think one of the major pieces was I think anyone who survived that time and place, first of all, had incredible luck. I mean, it's just astonishing. Like every single person that you talk to or every account that you read, there's a moment or several moments in which literally, like in my father's case, he stood up to put some salt on his noodles. And this is at the very end of the war when the Russians besieged the city. And an artillery shell burst outside the window and sent a piece of shrapnel into the column behind which he had just been sitting. So everyone has moments like that, of just yeah. random luck. But there were other factors too. And I think what I discovered in Budapest, one of the major ones was that my father had hidden his identity with a forged birth certificate. That part I knew. He left some memoirs that, that hinted this. Mm. What I didn't understand is that he had hid essentially as a Nazi soldier. And uh, he was not a combatant, but he served, he was 15 when the war ended. Uh, no, I'm sorry, he was 16 when the war ended. He served on basically a, a, a civil militia. You know, in, in Britain, you had the, the air raid wardens. Yes. He, served, he, he, he was doing that in Hungary. Um, and his uniform inc included... The Stahlhelm, the the iconic German helmet. So, I actually saw footage of not him, but one of his one of the people he served with. Two of the people he served with. I chanced upon it, and once I understood what that level of hiding had actually been, and what the act of adopting the uniform of the people who are hunting you, what that does to someone. And I think the, I think his, his guilt at having survived and his guilt at having to take such extreme measures, mm. not only hiding himself, but adopting the uniform of the enemy. Um, that was hugely impactful. And I think it really changed him. And it told me a lot about my own present day experience. Wow, Christ, that's that's a hell of a story, isn't it? I didn't I didn't realize you could do such things. To be honest, I was, well, you know I didn't realize that you must have had a lot of um, I don't know cunning, I guess, and but amazing survival instinct. It's 
again, I, I put together the pieces of what my family survived and how they did it and the dumb luck and the cunning and the, the, the divine providence. I don't know what else to call it. It's astonishing to me. It's astonishing. But, but these things leave scars. And uh, it's funny, my father was a very, well, okay, my, my, my cousin in Hungary, one of my cousins put it very elegantly to me. He, he's about my age, so he, my father was like an uncle to him. And he adored my father. But he said, your father was so strong and so stable but his children are all a map of his trauma. And I don't think anyone has ever said anything so piercing and true about my family or about, I think, anyone in my position as the child or the survivor. Yes. Because, and um, yes, and there's very little spoken about that, isn't there, as well? That's the thing. It's like, well, more, oh. more and more, more and more. I think as people are, are understanding the nature of ancestral trauma and the fact that it even exists, there's more and more coming out. There's more coming to light, you know? I mean, yeah. Again, from my perspective, all I knew was that my present day life was not working and I couldn't figure out why. And eventually this path led me, well, led me here. Yes. And did your father, at towards the end of his life, did he, did he sort of, how did he navigate that kind of, childhood experience the teen years or did it just always stay underneath it mostly stayed underneath you know at the very end of his life i actually i really cajoled him to write down his memories uh, of those early years and i'm so glad i did because they're they're really invaluable and yet i can tell rereading them now that he couldn't, he still could not process what had happened. In fact, he says so. He, uh, as he only wrote about 25 pages, but as it gets to the end, towards the Battle of Budapest, he actually, I, I can't quote him from memory, but he says, it's, it's almost, it's hard to believe that after so much time has passed and how safe and comfortable my life is now, I still can't believe how difficult it is to even imagine that these things happened. And after all these years, I, I, I can't, I still can't face them. Yeah. So as his son, well, as the son, it also, you know, there's a sense of, of familial duty. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't face those things for himself. And as a result, he passed some of those traumas on to the people, to his children. But it's my hope that as his son, even though he's long gone, maybe this helps put some part of him to rest. Yes. Did you ever sort of feel tempted to visit other places in, in Europe as well? Or did you just stick with Hungary? No, I really, I really wanted to center on that experience because that's the crux of my family's story. Um, I have taken other trips and um, one of them, my last trip was probably 2017, 18. 
I visited my father's sister, my aunt, who has since passed away from COVID, I'm sorry to say. But she uh, she was living in a nursing home in Switzerland, and she got to share her stories, and I got to introduce my daughter and wife to her, which is an incredible gift. Um, on a previous visit, I visited the um, the prison where my grandfather, my father's father, was a prisoner of war in the First World War. This is in Sicily. Uh, and I also think of that Circus Lupus tour in 93. Mm. Played a couple of dates in Belgium. And we went to, I'm so grateful for this. It was kind of an odd thing to visit on, on a punk tour. But our guide took us to a place called Brindonk, which was a, um, it was, I think, a Belgian army facility that was taken over by the Germans when they occupied. And it was used as a prison by the Gestapo. And uh, being in these concrete cells where people were tortured and then walking outside to these wooden posts, which still have bullet holes in them, for where resistance members were executed, mm. I realized almost for the first time, how close in time we really were. You know, I mean, like I said, when I, when I was growing up, the Second World War, it's largely filmed in black and white, right? It's, it's another era, it's ancient history. But touring these places in Europe, and again, getting deeper into my own family story, we're really the merest sliver in time separates us. This is still living memory, right? Mm. I mean, I remember my grandfather, and he fought in the First World War. He was born in the 19th century. Again, that's living memory. So these things, again, it just hammers home the fact that these, these, these factors, these forces are still very much alive. They haven't just faded away. No. Not at all. It's amazing because my my dad now is nearly 90, but he talks all the time. Well, I, I get him to talk a lot. I mean, he's absolutely fine in a lot of ways, but his childhood during the Second World War is just always, for me, so fascinating. I can't stop him talking about what it was like. And also the, the, the village that I grew up in had a Second World War aerodrome. So we played on this aerodrome all yes. the time and this was like all these americans came over and i sort of tried to picture what it must be like having 3000 americans in this one place i mean there was like 40 odd aerodromes and just the way that that all built up and all developed and um and it's still and little things happen like in the first world war my grandfather my dad's dad he'd gone he wasn't in the war, but he or was he? He did go to look after the horses. Then he stayed behind after the war, um, in somewhere in Germany uh, for a while and lived in Germany. And he said he wrote a letter to a woman that he loved, but it was a relationship that could never be because of various reasons. But the woman died because she was like 110, and then someone was clearing out this stuff and came across Ralph Eastor, you know, and said contacted me saying you know was Ralph East or was that a relative of yours oh yes my dad oh. and this is a letter that he wrote from Germany during that period of the first world war to his kind of the love of his life and she obviously kept it until about three years ago and then it came back to us and it was like god that's you know he sent he wrote oh, this god. in 19 20, 1918 yes. or somewhere and 
you know, that's been in Metfield. No one knew it and no one sort of knew anything about it. And this woman was about 104 when she died. And, you know, the grandson or great grandson sort of gave it to me and gave it to my dad. And he was God, this is, a, you know, and and That's so you're incredible. right. That that slither of time is so. God, it's nothing. Know, it's nothing. It is absolutely what happened then is just my dad can remember seeing these, you know, here in the plains, all the blackouts tonight. When I spoke to him, he was talking about the blackouts because my brother loves research and stuff, so he keeps getting little things from the paper from 1943 when somebody got fined £3 because they had their lights on or the Mm -hmm. curtains got drawn. And it was to do with the blackout, you know, in the vicarage in Metfield. And so we have these kind of stories that I have never heard about. And my dad's like, oh, I didn't know that happened, you know. And and certain little things that just keep on appearing that you think, well, that is so interesting, isn't it? You know, these... And that's like when my dad was there as a young boy and they had Americans stay with them on the farm who would help, you know, and and little bits mm-hmm. of social history that they kept the blacks and the whites from America oh, yeah. separate. And then I didn't realise until decades ago, oh, that's why there was some slightly darker kids at school because your grandmother was at the dance, had at the moment with a black soldier and suddenly there was this generation of ah that's why they were slightly darker skinned Mm -hmm. it's all those there's all those stories and more and one my mother had she worked with a woman and it was like her mother said i don't want you to find your father so she didn't until her mother died and he was an american serviceman and she tracked him down and he said i don't want to talk to you because he was married with a family eventually she dies he gets in touch she gets back in touch with him and they meet up and it's like one of the daughters said yeah you're definitely my dad you know you're definitely you know that's my dad and your dad and the other daughter said no i don't want to think about it and but she made peace you know it took all that time her mother said i don't want you finding your father you know it's an american but that's the end of it and he was like no i was never i don't know your mother and eventually he admitted to it and it was like again She's alive, but it gave her that, oh, thank God for that. I don't want money. I don't want anything. I just want to see my dad. And it was like, shit, it's a slither of time, isn't it? You know, still people are being healed. You know, it's like that feeling of like some sort of experience and closure. So it happens and we, you know, have to move through it. But it's quite, you know, it's quite heavy. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) 80s indie pop. Jesus, what happened to that? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, so look, I, I always say, you know, if you could have asked your, or told your 16-year-old self something when you were starting out, what what were you, what would you say to them as a, you know, even if they ignored it or just said, oh, I don't want to know, if there's less, that little bit of advice, you went, like, this could be quite useful. To trust yourself. I think, uh, you know, going back to how we began our conversation, the experience of being a young person and immersing yourself in in music and what a, a really magical experience that is, just you and sound and the way it hits your body and the way it hits your brain. There's magic in that. And I think as we get older, the noise of the world comes in and it degrades that. It corrodes yes. that sense sort of, you know, that unity experience. And 
it's funny, I think about the Vile Cherubs now, the band I was in when I was 16. And in some ways, that's the favorite, that's my favorite music I've made because it is very innocent. There's no, there's no idea that this, you know, clearly this is not gonna be popular. This is not going to take me anywhere. But it did give me a musical family and uh, it gave me friendships that have lasted for decades. And I think of myself as a 16 year old trying to navigate the world and it's the eighties and it's such an oppressive time and place. I would tell my 16 year old to, to trust those instincts that they're good instincts and not to let, not to let the, the, the fears of, I don't know, of being a social being and being perceived a certain way mm. kind of degrade that or corrode that just, just to trust yourself. Trust, trust your own instincts. Yes, this is very good. Oh, look, well, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much. Been... Oh, David, what a treat. <laughs> what a story. Yeah, well, God, I'm looking forward to the book. It's going to be amazing to, uh, yeah, I'll keep an eye on it for this. Um, published by the San Francisco Cisco Chronicle. Well, that, that was, an, yeah, that was an early, an early piece on it. But yeah, if you, you, you you know my site. Yeah, right. You, you're, you're on the newsletter, I think. Yeah, go to Fatherland. That's the title of the book. And that will, you'll, you'll find updates there. Excellent. Oh, well, this is amazing. Gosh, yeah. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And if you want, I can always send you the link and um, you can always use it elsewhere. But great stuff. I will. Great stuff. I will. Look, look forward to, um, yes, hearing more of your early archives. This is going to be very yeah. exciting. Anyway, look, have a lovely day. I'm going to go to bed, but take care. See you later. Thanks, you too. Yeah, Bye-bye. take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know that's obvious, <laughs> but um, just in case. But uh, yes, a massive thank, um, big thank you and um, yeah, to, to Seth Lawrence for giving me the time for that interview. Um, I will give you the website um, on the link in the Podbean address actually but it is basically seth and then it's his surname.com so his surname and there's no dots or dashes is l-o-r-i-n-c-z-i dot com there you go so if you uh, go and look look that up but the vile tre- cherubs as well um fantastic stuff and like i said has has book coming out next year so this is the c86 show if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive keep it groovy that's what we say um and also yeah all these interviews have been archived on spotify itunes podbean it's true anyway have a great week stay safe <laughs>